Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, teach us to walk by faith. Allow us to trust in you, following in your footsteps until we're home forever. Amen. Well, last week, a few of my friends left for a Holy Land tour. And by the way, the one who's leading the tour has done it dozens and dozens of times. But Kayla said, the news reported, this is the very first tour back into Israel after COVID-19 and after Israel and Hamas were trying to kill each other. When I asked why they were willing to go during such a time of unrest, the response was classic, and I should have expected it. They said, there's never going to be a time when there isn't unrest over there. And as a historian and a theologian, I know they're right. Have you ever said or did something so outrageous people thought you were crazy? You turned your filter or safeguards off, the ones that normally keep you out of trouble, and said what you needed to say or did what you knew needed to be done. See, there are times when we must speak the truth in love. There are other times when we must be the truth for the world because the stakes are too high to remain silent, even though we know there will be consequences. In our gospel, Jesus' family thinks he's gone crazy, and the church leaders, they think he has a demon, or maybe he is a demon. So what caused this? If we go back a few weeks in the gospel, we discover Jesus has been a very, very busy rabbi. He finalized his 12 disciples, including a tax collector named Matthew, who invited him to a party that, of all things, was filled with sinners. On one of the religious holidays, when everyone who was anyone was fasting, Jesus and his disciples wouldn't. Jesus has been casting out demons, healing the sick, forgiving those outside the church, and then came the final straw. Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. Mark's gospel is a condensed, fast-paced overview of Jesus' ministry. Mark's favorite words are, and then this happened, and then this happened. He's racing us through the three years with no time for either the birth narrative or any of those long-winded sermons. Mark wants you to have no doubt that Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for and that he has the power to save you. Now, the church at Jesus' time spent more time hating the Romans and preserving traditions than they did worshiping God. As you read it, you would begin to wonder if for them salvation is about being saved from their sin or about being saved from the Romans. The disciples repeatedly ask, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And there is no doubt the Pharisees and Sanhedrin were more worried about Jesus conquering their already conquered kingdom than they were in looking for the Messiah that was right in front of them. How often do you talk about sin and evil? Now, I mean sin as acts of an all-consuming darkness, not just something that some people do that you don't like. And evil as a threat against all humanity, not just the atrocities that play out across the news every day. See, for some, talking about sin and evil is as uncomfortable as walking barefoot across broken glass. And for others, the talk of sin and evil flows like verbal diarrhea, where everything, and I mean everything, is sin and evil, except, of course, what they say and do. In his fifth chapter, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And yet we know that people who do those kind of things on social media, they always get the most likes and the most followers. American culture is fickle. You really don't know what direction the winds are blowing or for how long. What is tolerated one moment is condemned the next and then celebrated the moment after that. 
And whereas the church, and by the way, I'm specifically talking about the church that God talks about in the Bible, not the buildings and the denominations. We should be of one mind and purpose. There are lots of churches that advocate non-biblical theologies, to which Jesus warns, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The media is always able to find a church that holds to a non-biblical, heretical view of something which then the media calls progressive, and they use it to condemn historical, traditional churches. The media can also find an extremist church that holds to ancient cultural beliefs, not biblical, but cultural beliefs, and calls them biblical, which puts them at odds with political correctness and reality. As a result, the church's ability to speak on any given issue has been muted. Even when we have, even though what what we say is both necessary and needed, our voice is so divided that very few are willing to listen. Sin and evil are God's way of putting a name on things that need to be confronted and changed. Not because the church says so, but because He says so. These things are not just bad things happening to Christians and churches. They are bad things that are happening to everyone, everywhere. The church was not created to be the moral police or ethical enforcers. Our calling is far higher and more important. We have been called to remind the world, the entire world, the value of every single life, regardless of who they are, where they live, what their past is, or what their future looks like. It's a job that we have often failed miserably at because we're far more interested in creating clones than we are in actually following God. A young man came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but I got a funeral and a few other things to do first. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. I know, sounds pretty callous. But when you delve into the subtext, it has a far deeper message than just, and when Jesus calls, you better drop everything and go. See, Matthew 6 says you cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is more than just money. It's the love and evil influence of anything that devalues and cheapens life, all life. And Jesus' words to this young man are very pointed. He's got a decision to make, and it's not going to be an easy one. When someone lives their life outside God's love and grace, they are spiritually dead, even though they may appear to be very much alive physically. They made a choice, and we may not like it, but we do have to honor it. Matthew 6 goes on to say you can either have the praise of God or the praise of the world, but you can't have both. Jesus tells this young man with us listening in, You know what? Going to that funeral isn't going to change anything for that person. But there are some people who you can change the future of. But it's going to mean that you're going to have to willing to step up and basically say no to some of these cultural traditions that are holding you back and keeping you from fulfilling what the Bible is asking you to do. When Jesus ate with sinners who were not accepted by the church or treated women as equals or allowed little children to come right up and talk to him, or heal somebody on the Sabbath, or refuse to make a big deal out of fasting. The church leaders decided that he had to be demon-possessed, because following rules was how you proved that you belonged. What Jesus was really doing was showing the church that they had forgotten how to be the church. Every time he said, I know you've heard it said, and by the way, I imagine him rolling his eyes when he said it, it was his way of saying, you've been called to something greater and more precious than revenge, or one-upsmanship, or living a life of rules and regulations that aren't getting you anywhere. You see, Jesus did not reject the church. He rejected what the people had turned the church into. 
Jesus' family thinking he was crazy, whole different matter. He hadn't been eating or sleeping well. He was always at work. He was hanging out with questionable people. He was making the church leaders mad. I'll be honest, I think all of us would have questioned his mental health if we had been there. If you have ever known anyone with mental health issues, you know how painful it is to watch them. You never know where or if it will end. And when you tell them that you're concerned, they always turn and say, I got this, don't worry about it, everything's fine. Even though from our view, everything doesn't look fine at all. St. Mark shows us Jesus going from zero to 60 in 1.2 seconds. It's like he's drinking a dozen energy drinks before breakfast so that he can save the world before lunch. From an outside perspective, Jesus causes so much disarray and leaves such a trail of broken rules wherever he goes, you can understand why all the people were concerned, because it wasn't normal. But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. See, no one else ever called Jesus a fake. As C.S. Lewis said, only three options. Jesus is God, Jesus is crazy, or Jesus is a demon. No one, including his family and especially the religious leaders, were prepared for God to be right there in front of them and part of their life in their church. And so that leaves crazy or demon. Jesus' defense is to point out they're crazy to say a demon would cast out another demon because that would mean that Satan is at war with himself. And if that's true, then the church can start celebrating because Satan is done. In a quote borrowed from Abraham Lincoln, or perhaps it was the other way around, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And here is where Jesus calls Satan and his demons exactly what they are. Thieves and liars, stealing the souls of God's people. You know, when my family lived right here on the church campus, we were burglarized on several occasions. One of them, Nancy lost some jewelry that was not expensive, but it had a lot of sentimental value. We asked the officer what the chances were of recovering it, and the officer turned and immediately said, you know, you might go up to the cam swap meet Saturday. Good chance you might be able to buy it back. And then he said, by the way, if you find it, don't call us. There's nothing we can do. And because I was a little bit angry, and I'm a smart aleck, I turned and I said, but what if I can steal it back from them? And his words to me were, don't get caught. Yeah, we didn't go to the swap meet. Jesus goes all in telling the parable of the strong man. Satan has stolen the world from God. That's what Genesis 3, our first lesson, was all about. God has come to take it back, and the way he's going to do that is tying up Satan and liberating anyone and everyone from the power and the fear that Satan brings into their life. When Jesus dies and then rises from the dead, Satan's power is ended. He becomes nothing more than a dog on a chain. As long as you don't get too close, he can't hurt you. This simple parable, by the way, contains the entire gospel clearly and concisely if you're willing to listen to it with more than just your ears. If you hear it with your mind and your heart and your soul, you go, wow, God is amazing. Here's one of the things I need you to see and understand, by the way, about Genesis chapter 3. See, we might imagine this scene in the Garden of Eden played out with God standing there, his finger pointing away from the Garden of Eden as he tells Adam and Eve, get out of here and you can never come back. And then, by the way, when that uh, angel shows up with the flaming sword, we know that God means business. But there's more to the text than that. God doesn't say you have to leave. He says we have to leave. God doesn't stay in the garden. He doesn't set up shop and say, well, now we're safe and those people are out there on their own. Instead, he turns to Satan and he says, the day is coming when I am going to crush your head. And the only way that can happen 
as if God goes out into the wilderness with his people. You see, God had to let us live in the mess we created for ourselves, but he wouldn't send us out without coming with us. When you walk through our gospel, you understand the fight over eternity and heaven and hell is between God and Satan. And we are more than just caught up in the middle. People take sides, either God or Satan. And by the way, you can't not take a side. God is calling us to walk with him, to watch him go about his work, which besides continually creating more pieces of the universe for us to explore, it's all about saving us. And I want you to think about that for a second. God's greatest work is saving us. In other words, out of all the things that God could do, the thing he spends the most time and the thing he enjoys the most is saving us so we can spend eternity with him. Now, the Pharisees have chosen their side, and Jesus' story is pointing out they chose the wrong side. Jesus didn't fit into their plan. God was getting in the way of their traditions, their jobs, their comfortableness, and so they try to tell everyone that he's obviously demon-possessed. Jesus calls their bluff and says, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. Now, every time the Pharisees got near Jesus, every time they heard him speak, watched him heal people, saw the crowds, they began to think like they should be doing more for the kingdom of God and less for themselves. They just couldn't do it. And so they killed Jesus. That way they didn't have to feel that way anymore and could go back to their good old boys club. Every time I start to think that they were such terrible people, completely and totally unholy, I remember all the times that I've crucified Jesus. He didn't fit into my plans, so I got rid of him. I shoved him out the door, locked and bolted it, and hung up a big do not disturb sign on it. Now, I didn't have to use nails. I just crucified him by telling him to mind his own business. It's my life, not his. Except that's not right. You see, as it turns out, I am his business, as foolish as that may seem. So what's your purpose in life? What do you have to do? And what do you want to do? Christians should be different, not just to be different or so that we can rub people's noses in it or become moral police telling everybody we're so much better than they are. But we should be different because it's who we were created to be, created in the image of God. What the Pharisees got wrong was Jesus' motives. He was out freeing people from their guilt, their sins, their disabilities that left them on the side of the road, their family dysfunction, the never-ending feeling that they couldn't and haven't and couldn't do enough. He didn't do it to push them out of their jobs. He did it so that the Pharisees would begin to realize that life is more than rules and regulations and guilt and envy and tears and pain and death. Jesus once said, whoever spends everything he has to keep his life will lose everything. But whoever loses his life, giving it all away for me, they will find it. The life you grasp, hoard, and play safe with in the end is worth nothing. Only a life given away for love's sake is worth anything and lasts forever. According to human wisdom and culture, Jesus really was crazy. He died without a family, a home, a six-figure income. He died a criminal's death with a crown of thorns on his head. People, well, people stood around and made fun of him. But in the most beautiful of ways, he wasn't just a fool. He was the perfect fool. And if we think we can follow him without making a fool of ourselves, we are not living under the fool's cross, but a delusion that is leading us to a dead end. Only a fool would love and forgive those who didn't deserve it. But then again, only a fool would believe that God loved them so much that he'd never let go of them, that he will pursue them to the ends of the earth because he's got a place called heaven and he wants them to be with him forever. And yet as the only thing that really gives us hope. 
Jesus says the strong man is all tied up. He's still barking and snarling and screaming, but his chain is short and his power is limited. And so as long as we stay just out of reach, there's not much he can do. We have been freed and we have the opportunity to step out into the light and the love of God. And maybe as we go, we might be able to tell the strong man a joke about the fool that trusted in God and discovered that wasn't so foolish after all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.